Uh, Ephesians is really that, a book that points out the glory of the church. It just is God's crowning jewel. And this great mystery that we've been talking about, this joining together of two people into one, this, this Jew and all of humanity, Gentile, that are now come together for God's specific purpose, is the church. And it's this incredible picture of God's glory fully revealed. And what we're going to explore this morning is that glory on full display, that God has a plan, not just for, for Paul, but that God has got a plan for us, for the church, for the church big C, and for the church for us in terms of this movement that we have here, this community. And that really God has done this incredible thing that he has put all of his glory on display when he put the church together as his crowning jewel, this movement of which he would display his wonder and his glory to the entire world. And it's, it's amazing to think that God has taken us, who are part of this sort of ragtag picture of things from all different walks of life and places, and he has said, you are going to be the display of my love and glory for not just humanity, but to, as we'll see today, for all the spiritual realms. Like, you are the display of my manifold grace and goodness. And it's just pretty awesome. It's also wild, right, that this is how God chose and chooses to reveal himself to the world, to the church, this thing that we have here. Nothing mega, nothing massive, nothing perfect, nothing well-knit or put together, just people of God saved by him, knit together and on full display for the world and universe to see the glory of the Almighty. It's pretty cool. We're going to be looking at it this morning. So for those of you that are here for the first time, we've been on this sort of slow move through the book of Ephesians. We really love to work through Scripture. We want you to fall in love with Scripture. We want you to understand the whole of it. We want you to have this love affair with God's Word. And so we teach and love to teach exegetically through Scripture. We like to work out every word, all the nuances. We don't like to skip over the hard parts. We want to deal with them and figure out, hey, what is, what is God saying to me? What does that mean? How does that, what does that kind of look like in context with the rest of his word. We like to look at the whole of God's redemptive work throughout all of history and scripture. So all of scripture is part of this this knitting that comes together to demonstrate God's redemptive plan, Old and New Testament, all part of God's great story. And so we've been in the book of Ephesians and we've made it to chapter three. And chapter three, I told you last week, is fascinating for two real reasons. One, because Paul starts in chapter one about to pray for the Ephesians. He's gone through two chapters, breaking everything down in terms of who they are apart from Christ, how much we need Jesus, where grace comes into the picture, all these incredible things. And he says, I'm going to pray for you. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. And then he stops and he interjects 12 more verses of kind of some more qualifiers and more wise, and maybe I don't think you quite understand. And then in verse 14, which we're going to pick up the next time we open the book, is going to be the continuation or where he stays that prayer again. He'll actually bring in that phrase again. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. So he stops. And it's fascinating because he shoves in this sort of train of thought of 12 verses to say, I want to make sure you understand before I really dive into praying for you because this is so important that you understand who I am, but more so you understand who you are and what God's move and plan is for us. And so we looked at it last week. That was the first reason. The second reason uh, that I told you it was kind of interesting is because Paul does this incredible job kind of unveiling this great mystery. And he talks a lot about it. Ephesians 1 talks about it. It's talked deeply about it here. There's this great mystery of God that is unveiled or uh, kind of shown or made clear through Christ. And, and Paul's role is to be the administrator or the, the remover of the veil, if you will, or the teacher of this great mystery. And last week he told us what that mystery was. And for you and I, it's a little bit challenging because there is no mystery. As we sit here today, with our Bibles in our hand, Old and New Testament, blended full together in God's redemptive word, knowing the full work of God, right? That Jesus came, he walked on this earth, he died for us, he was raised from the dead, that everything that we know about Christianity is on full display. There are no mysteries, right? We know the beginning and we know the end. We know what God has done in between. So for us to think about mystery in terms of God's will or God's move is hard because everything in our history now is on full display because Christ has come, he has fulfilled the law, and he has been raised from the dead. But in those days, right, mystery was still very much a part of God's story because God had yet to fully reveal his workings in the world. It was happening in real time at that moment. So what that means is that generations pre-Christ did not understand God's full movement for redeeming the world. 
They had words and bits and pieces from the prophets, from judges, from kings. They had allusions from guys like Isaiah that would give these great messianic texts, but they didn't quite know how they fit in or where to put them. It's the whole reason everyone's really confused on on Palm Sunday when Jesus comes riding into town on the back of a baby donkey. They don't know God's redemptive plan. They think that Jesus is coming to establish a political power and reign on the throne of David, but instead, what does he do? He comes riding into town on the back of a baby donkey and is crucified on a cross. Not to redeem the power of Israel, but to conquer sin and death. All that was being made clear in the moment. And what Paul says is this great mystery of God is what God was doing through Jesus Christ. He says it in verse 6. Through Jesus Christ was he was taking two people, the Jews, God's people that he has moved and drawn throughout all of Old Testament redemptive history, and he is now merging them in with the rest of creation, all the Gentiles, which is everyone else, that anyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ is part of one new family. That God has taken all of broken humanity and he has knit it together in one. And Paul says, this is the great mystery revealed. And my call is to tell you about it. And so chapter 6, all last week, if you want to go back and listen, you can. It's all on the website, is explaining that great mystery. Well, this morning Paul's going to take it one step further. and He's going to say, I want you to understand my role in this mystery. And I want you to understand your role in this mystery and how it changes the church. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to chapter uh, 3, verse 7. We're going to pick right up where we left last week in this context of this sort of train of thought that's happening in between. He starts this prayer, doesn't quite get into it. This train of thought, he's going to explain his, his purpose. He's going to explain the purpose of the church and hopefully send us into this place where we recognize the beauty of what it means to actually be the community of God. Let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll dive headlong into it. Lord, uh, you are incredible. You have orchestrated your redemptive plan through the movement, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have brought your people, both Jew and Gentile, together through grace, through nothing we could do on our own, both groups fully dead in our sin. And yet, Lord, you have drawn us together, saved by grace when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as one new people. And you have taken that group of people and you have made them the crowning jewel. You have made them the the tool by which you would demonstrate your love and grace to the world and to all the known entities. Lord, this is who we are. This is our call. This is our story. That because of Jesus and because of your great love for us, you have unveiled your mystery of your redemptive work from creation till now and you have allowed us to become part of it. That what we couldn't do for ourselves in our own sinful state, you did for us through Jesus and then gave us the opportunity to surrender our lives to him and be saved and be joined together as one family. Lord, as we gather here this morning, we are very much the family of God. But not just here at the Vine Community Church, we are knit together with other believers across space and time, up this street, across our state, through our city, across the country, across the globe, across space, Lord, through time with believers that have gone before us and will come after us. Lord, we are knit together as one family. This is your great plan for humanity, the great mystery revealed. And this morning, Lord, I'm excited to see how you demonstrate your heart for the church and the role that we have in the dissemination of this plan to the universe. It's pretty amazing. Take a moment in your own heart as you sit here this morning and just ask the Lord to teach you doesn't have to be anything groundbreaking or earth-shattering. Just, Lord, teach my heart. Just for the next moments as we sit here and we open your word, will you prepare me to hear from you? Just whisper those things in your heart this morning. Take a moment as we do each week and pray for someone beside you and maybe they're in front of you or behind you or just around you. Maybe it's your spouse or your children or just be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Um, hopefully if you've been here for a while, this is second nature to you. But pray for the people around you. Ask God to move in them. Care about the family you're a part of. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. Teach us through your word. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. 
So we're picking up in verse 7, which is right on the heels of Paul, where we spent all last week, where he's talking about this great mystery that's revealed. And I just, just recapped it for you. So we know what that mystery is, this sort of unveiling of God's redemptive movement that's going to include all of humanity in with the Jews as God's redeemed people. If we put our hope and our faith in Jesus Christ, no one is more important than the other. We are all on this sort of equal ground, saved by grace and a part of one new family. This is God's great story. So this is what Paul says in, in verse 7. He says, I, right, Paul, became a servant to this gospel. That gospel is the mystery that I just told you about, right? So I became a servant to this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery to which for ages past was kept hidden in God through all created things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the authorities and the rulers of the heavenly realms and according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in him and through faith, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. So Paul interjects this thing in between this prayer, in which he sets up this idea of saying, I want you, before I begin to pray for you, to understand what God is doing. Like, I really want you to hear this mystery revealed, and I want you to hear my role in it, and I want you to understand your role in it. And so this is what he begins. He begins by basically saying, God has a purpose for my life. He has a plan for me. And this plan is not something that I chose, and it's not something that I deserve. And this is kind of how he frames it, right? He says, listen, I became a servant to this gospel by the gift of God's grace, and it was given to me through his power. So he's saying this, I, Paul, right, I was given this plan, and it's not a plan that I actually chose. It was given to me through the power of God. And he goes, because I want you to understand that I had a different plan for my life. You remember we talked a little bit last week about God, Paul's plan for his life. As a young man, he was set to be ruler of this sort of a religious class, or at least in that upper echelon of a religious elite, he had marked a pathway out for himself. He was educated by the greatest minds. From 13 on, he was educated in the deepest and most well-renowned seminaries, if you will, in those days. He was educated by the highest level of Pharisees. By the time he was 20, it's said that he had the equivalent of essentially two PhDs. Paul had a fast track to authority and to power and to life. And these Christians came in, and they began to become a threat to the religious way of life of the Pharisees and the religious elite. And so Paul took it upon himself, right? You remember the story? He goes to the high priest, and he says, I will single-handedly wipe out these Christians. Why? Because they're a threat to us. But make no mistake, Paul probably didn't have as much issue with the Christians as he saw this as an opportunity to grab power. To say, I have established a plan for my life, and I will carry it out. And he goes to the high priest and says, give me a letter, and I'll go to every town in the area, and I will arrest all of these fools. And you can do what you want to with them. You can kill them if you want to. You can do whatever. But I will round them up. And then essentially, he said, the people will love me, right? I will have a place of power and prominence. And essentially, that's his plan for his life. And so Paul says, I need you to understand something as he's talking to the Ephesians. Because they wouldn't have known this. This is people that are living in Ephesus. They weren't around Jerusalem. They have no history of who Paul is outside of what they've been told or maybe what he explained to them for those three years that he was there teaching in Ephesus on that first missionary journey. And he said, I have a plan for my life, but I want you to understand that God has interrupted that plan and he has actually given me something incredibly different. He's given me a new purpose. And that new purpose is not something that I chose. I chose my own way. I was chasing myself. I was in full pursuit of me, of my glory and of my movement and what I thought was best for my career. Not unlike most of us, right? I'm going to pursue what's best for me. I've got to look out for number one. I've got to make sure I do the things that further my career, my business, my life. This is my plan. And Paul says, but, but God had a different purpose for me and it was given to me by him. So Paul's saying, I'm not coming to press my will upon you. I, I, I had a totally different plan for my life. But God did this. And not only did he do this, right? 
I didn't choose this. It was fully given to me, and I don't deserve it. Look at how he talks about himself in verse 8. Right? This plan was given to me. Right? Through the working of his power, although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me. So Paul says, look, I had a purpose and a plan. God thwarted it and moved me in a different direction. He gave me something that I didn't choose and something that I didn't deserve. I am the least of all of God's people. Now, this is not Paul's humble brag. He's not saying, guys, it's hard uh, because my biggest weakness is I'm a perfectionist. Right? You're like, it's not a weakness. You're just telling us how great you are. This is not a humble brag by which he kind of goes, hey, guys, you know, you pray for me or whatever. I've written my third book, and I just really need it to kind of uh, get out there and get the word out there, you know, I mean, like we do on social media you know, all the time. It's not Paul doing that. He basically goes, I don't deserve any of this, and you want to know why? Because I truthfully deserve to be dead. You know my life's ambition the people I'm writing to is to have you essentially all killed. If I'm in a moment of total transparency, Paul's going, I was on a mission to at least imprison you and ruin your life and at best probably kill you all. That was what I was chasing. I was so wrapped up in my own way of life and my own power on my own thing that I didn't care about you guys at all. In fact, in my life, right, we know this, Paul stood and give, gave plenty of approval as they heaped rocks, right, upon other believers. Watching them die, the stoning of Stephen, Paul stands there and gives his authority as he holds the cloaks at his feet of the people that are throwing rocks until his skull is smashed in. When Paul says, I am the least of God's people, Paul is saying, I am most literally the least of God's people. I deserve to be dead, to do nothing. I deserve no grace of God. This is not for me. So when you hear me, don't hear me coming as this place of authority. Hear me coming from a place of saying, of all people, I do not have the right, or I shouldn't have the right to say anything to you except what God has given me. So Paul says, I've got this incredible purpose, and I didn't choose it, and I don't deserve it. And it's a real kind of way of Paul's, we'll talk a little bit more in a moment about it, but it's a real part of Paul's heartbeat as he recognized exactly who he was. So the Ephesians are not being thrust upon by some religious authority. They're hearing from a, a guy who was saved. A guy who was walking his own path, moving his own direction, choosing himself, and God stepped in and said, no, no, I've got something different and better, and I'm going to give it to you, and you don't deserve it. And Paul says... This is essentially my story as much as it is yours. We're all steeped in sin and saved by grace. So we see this plan that Paul, this purpose that God has for Paul, one that he didn't deserve, one that he didn't choose. And he says that purpose, right, is this. This is the purpose that he tells them. That this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for all ages has been kept hidden in God who created all things. So he says, look, there's two parts to this purpose that God's given me, right? The first is that I'm called to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is my new call. My job is to tell you, if you're there and you're sitting in Ephesus, there are some Jews and there's a ton of Gentiles. And he said, my whole call is to tell you about the unsearchable, unknowable, unfathomable, depending on what your translation says, riches of Christ. Paul says, I have one single journey, one single purpose, and it's not to elevate myself. It's not to become celebrity pastor, to have the, the largest church in America or have 19 services. It's just simply to tell you about the unknowable, unsearchable, and fathomable riches of Christ. I don't care what you do with me. I want you to know Jesus, right? This was Paul's entire movement. You can read any of his letters, and every single one of his letters bleeds with this truth. He tells the Corinthians, for I have resolved myself to know nothing while I'm with you except Christ and him crucified. In other words, I've come to you, I have told myself, I know zero. All I can tell you is that I've experienced Jesus and the power of his crucifixion. Paul says, my job is simply to have you know Jesus. It's why on Sunday morning, if you've been here for any period of time, I tell you that we want two things if you're here for the very first time. 
First, we want you to have an encounter with the risen Christ. That's all we want, really, truthfully. That's our heartbeat. We want you to have an encounter with Jesus. It basically comes out of what Paul's saying right here, which is, my whole job is just that you would encounter the unsearchable riches of Jesus. Outside of that, I don't care. Like Our goal is not to get you back or to lure you in or kind of throw one down the middle so you're like, oh, that wasn't bad, wasn't too offended. We'll give him a second chance. Like I literally have been raised in that window where a pastor leader once told me, he said, listen, on any big Sunday when you preach, don't go hard this way or hard that way. Just throw it down the middle and see if we can get him to come back. And I thought, I want to die. <laughs> like this is horrible. Our whole goal, even standing here, should just be like, I just want you to know the unsearchable riches of Christ. Right? That's it. But Paul goes on to say this. He says, that's only part of my calling, although it's, it's an important part. The second part of my calling is really simple, and it's for everybody. It's to make fully known to everyone, right? So he says, to make fully and plain known to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden. So he looks at the Gentiles and he said, and the second part of my mission is actually for that guy sitting next to you, for the Jews. My job also, as I'm preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles, is to make known to the Jewish person, to everyone, this great mystery, that God has broken down the barriers that once was separated, Jew and Gentile, that the Sorek, that wall that we talked about in the temple, has been clearly knocked down. The Gentiles have full access to Almighty God, just as you do now through Christ. My job is to make the world know that this gospel message is for you, Jew or Gentile. So I make clear to the Gentile, right? The unsearchable riches of Christ and to everyone that will listen, Jews included, to say the great mystery has been revealed. I am the administer, the administrator of this great mystery, meaning God has pulled the veil and this new family you're a part of. And if you're a Jew and you don't like it, I don't care. God has done something remarkable. He has saved you and he has grafted in all of humanity into this great family. Paul goes, that's my only job. My job is simple, right? That is his purpose for me. I didn't choose it. And where is Paul writing this from? He's writing it from prison in Rome, waiting trial for Caesar. So Paul says, look, this is God's plan for me. But what's really remarkable is he basically transitions to say, but it's not just my job. God has a purpose and plan for you, the church. And listen to what he says. He goes, essentially, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realm. So his intent, listen carefully because this is powerful. His intent is that in God who created all things, right, that through the church he is going to make known the manifold wisdom of God to all the rulers and authorities in the spiritual realms. Now stay with me because this gets a little complicated, but I want you to hear it. So he says, my job, my role, my purpose is to teach and preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentile and to make known the great mystery to the Jew, to everyone to unveil the great movement of Christ. And as that happens, and as you sit there and you read this letter, and as we, the church, gather here this morning are hearing these things, he says, however, that message doesn't stop here. The intent was that once I tell you and you receive Jesus, you become the safeguarders, the caretakers, the trust keepers of this message, and God is going to do something incredible through you. He is actually going to use you as exhibit A of his manifold wisdom and glory for all of creation and all of spiritual heavenly realms. You are the great display of God's glory. You are the manifestation of his wisdom. In other words, what he's saying is that I'm going to take the church and I'm going to put it on the stage of history. And I'm going to fill the audience with every angel, good and bad, with Satan, with every good and evil spiritual entity there is. And I'm going to display for all of creation and all the spiritual realms that the church is the manifestation of my glory because I have taken what was shattered, what was broken, what once was two, and I've made it one. It's like when Satan shows up in Job's life and he says, this God is essentially not worth look, uh, living for. God is now in full display showing all the heavenly realms. Not only have I taken these broken people that have warred and fought and been isolated and, and beat each other up and destroyed each other and stabbed and killed and did all these things, but I, through my son, I have knit them together and they are the full display of my wonder and my glory. 
What God has done is add another dimension to what happens in John 13. Remember John 13? Jesus, is a, that night that he's betrayed, the night that they share the Last Supper, the night that he gets handed over, the night that he washes the disciples' feet, he gathers them all there as they're sitting there, and he says, listen, I'm going to give you a new command. And this new command is going to change the world. This new command I give you is this, love one another as I have loved you. And you know what? By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. So what he's telling the, the disciples is, your greatest evangelistic tool you have to tell the world about who I am is how you love each other. You become the manifold display of my glory and wisdom to all of creation. Here, Paul adds another dimension to that. He says, not only is that true, church, not only are you the manifestation of God's wisdom and glory to the world, but God has told and told us that the church will be the manifold expression of his wisdom to all of the spiritual realms, which means you are the crowning, most beautiful jewel that God has made to become one and this great new people by which he displays to all of spiritual realms, good and bad, that God's glory reigns. Now, I know that a lot of us think our role as the church is simply to do the things the church does, right? Fight for the oppressed, care for those that can't care for themselves, pray for each other, take the gospel to the world. Those things are all true. But the byproduct of this incredible purpose of which God is doing is he's using the church and how it interacts with each other, this two becoming one, as a display of his glory for all the universe. It's hard to wrap our minds around that, but it's absolutely incredible. It means how the church loves and interacts with each other is a full display of God's grace and goodness, not just here, but for the entire universe. To look at Satan and go, you are defeated because look at what I have done. That's why the church is such a beautiful movement of God's grace. It's why we can sit in a room with people that don't look like us, act like us, come from the same background or walks of life. It's why we don't Right? and aren't separated from the bigger picture of the church across the globe. Yes, there are small things. There are different things that divide us or have us gather in different places. But if we hope and trust and put our faith in Christ, we are one. We are one. So we can quit talking bad about every church up and down the street and corner and just do our best to fall in line with the idea that Jesus is the great uniter. Now, that's not to say, not a side change, that's not to say there's not terrible churches. I'm sure there are. Let's just be honest. But that being said, you get my point. My point is, is that when we fully surrender to Christ, fully surrender to Christ in his word, he begins to carve out those things. So if we ever don't surrender to that, I think we cease to become the church. God's word, right, is not our guiding principle that we have to ask ourselves, are we even the church? Side note. So Paul says this purpose is, uh, is now yours. And he goes, there's two real qualifiers here I want you just to hear. He says, the first one is this. He says, this, is, this purpose, right, is according to the eternal, this purpose is according to God's plan, which he accomplished through Christ Jesus. Look at verse 12. In him and through faith, we may now approach God with freedom and confidence. So he said, listen, as the church, you've been saved. Hear me. What that means is this. It doesn't just mean you're going to go to heaven when you die. That is just a big part of it, but it is not what it fully means. What it fully means to be saved is that you were once dead, and now you have full access to mighty, holy, majestic God. And when I say full access, I mean full access. There is no more veil. There is no more wall. There is no mediator, no special day, no special robes, no special school or special class that you have to attend before you can access God's full wisdom and glory. He actually breaks down all those barriers so there are no more go-betweens. We don't have to go to someone else to intercede for us on our behalf. We have full access to God. And Paul says, because of that, you can approach God with full confidence, right? You can approach him with confidence. In other words, not in fear. You don't have to be afraid. We can approach God with this confidence and with this freedom. This was not part of the story for either of these people groups for millennia. The Jews couldn't approach God with confidence or freedom. They had to have the Levites. They had to have a go-between. They had to go on a special day. God was inaccessible. Why? Because he was super holy. And they were super sinful. 
And as we explored kind of about a year or so ago, and we were working through the Old Testament names of God, you did not play around with holy God. God was unapproachable. And if you approached God at all, if you were part of the right family on the right day and cleansed in the right way, it wasn't with confidence. In fact, when the high priest would go in the tabernacle behind the curtain on the day of atonement, they would tie a rope to his leg. So if he did something wrong or was not pure or touched the wrong thing, they could drag out his dead body. And that is true. You talk about confidence? No. God is holy. I am super not holy. But he says now through Christ, all of that has been wiped out. And that we have full access and confidence and freedom to approach Christ. I find it remarkable, right? Because I know me. (laughs) I'm a train wreck. But yet God, through Jesus, has given us full access. And for the Gentile, they didn't have access either. They could show up at the temple, but they were kept out by a wall that says, if you cross here, we will kill you. That's what it said. They actually have one on display in the museum in Turkey. The Sorek, this pony wall that kind of kept the outer court, called the Gentile court, kept the Gentiles from going in, and if they crossed it, the Jews would kill them. You approach God with confidence? No, you didn't even have the freedom to do it. So when he says now that you have the freedom, this is groundbreaking, incredible, beautiful stuff. So he says, you're going to be God's full display of all of his glory, and you have freedom to approach Christ. You have freedom to approach holy God, and you can do it in confidence because you've been saved, not just the promise of eternal life, but full access to Almighty God. The second qualifier he says is this, and then we'll kind of wrap all this up with a few thoughts. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you. This is basically your glory. Remember, Paul's in jail. He told him that last week. He said, listen, I'm in jail for you and because of you, just FYI. But I love it. I'm fine with it. Um, And he says, don't worry about me. I would die a thousand deaths, essentially to be able to tell you what I just told you. For you to believe what I told you in 10 and 11 about your purpose, that's why I exist. I will happily stand trial. Because Paul also knows where his life was. He knows what it means to be saved. He knows what it means to be delivered from something, delivered from himself. And so he says, look, don't be sad for me. Don't let my sufferings bother you. Don't be sad that I'm in jail. I would do this a thousand times over just so that you would know. Now, here's what's remarkable about all this, a couple of different things, but what's really remarkable for me in all this is is that Paul stops this prayer, right? He's not just trying to force things upon this church. He stops it and he says, listen, I want you to understand my heart behind all this. I'm not just trying to tell you these things so that you'll be really great and be a super church. I'm just trying to tell you so you understand where they come from. Because it's one thing to have knowledge about God. It's the other thing to know God. And Paul says, look, I chased my own life. I chose my own ways. I looked for answers in all these books and all these places. And you know what I found? At the end of all that, I found myself. And it was always empty. And so God gave me this purpose that I didn't choose nor I don't deserve it. And he's given you a purpose that you don't deserve and that you didn't choose either. Essentially, as the church, when God grafted you together, he gave you this incredible call that you'll be the demonstration of his wisdom to the world, his glory and grace to the watching world and to the universe. That God will make this church, the Vine Community Church, as part of a bigger collective big C, his crowning glory. We can be free and we can approach with confidence and our whole heartbeat should just be to carry out the mission. Like Paul's, I don't care if I go to jail, I don't care what it is, I just want to be faithful in what you've called me to. So for me, there's several takeaways here that I think are really important. Um, pretty simple, I'll keep them simple because I think it's kind of where Paul's heart is in this moment at least. He gets complicated later on, but it's pretty simple here. He says, and for me it's essentially this, we've got to dump the inflated view of ourselves. So let me be real honest with you. You're not that great. Uh, you're just not. And, and you know it, and I know it, because I'm not that great. And if we honestly do a, a true evaluation of our heart and our mind, if we really walk through there, it's not that hard to figure out. I mean, we're really sinful people. We really chase like Paul ourselves. We're really all about me. Even when it comes to the people that we love the most, we do anything to win an argument, to make a point, right? We hurt people intentionally. We know the things to say to hurt somebody else, yet we say that single thing. 
We know how to use passive-aggressive language in emails. We know how to be painful. We know how to chase the things that our bodies desire. We know the things that we did when no one's around. We know what we looked at. We know what we saw. We know how we act. We know how we spoke. If you truly examine your heart and you take all the inflated kind of picture of I'm not all that bad out, you're really pretty terrible, and so am I. And even if you're thinking, well, you know, I haven't done all those terrible actions, you still live in the realms of the would-haves and could-haves and should-haves, right? Which is that mentality that basically says, hey, if I'd have been in that situation, I would have. Or, man, if that would have been me, I could have done that. I could have killed him. I could have done this. I could have acted this way. Or the should-haves, which is that part of our mind that says, if I could do it all again, I would definitely do that. And I'm not talking about it in the realm of good things. I'm talking about the would-haves and the could-haves and the should-haves in the realm of the terrible things that happen in our minds. Our minds betray us. Our heart is dirty. That's what all of Ephesians 2 is about, that we are dead in our sin. Part of understanding your role and purpose, not just in terms of following Christ, but in being in the church, is recognizing that you aren't that great. It's in all Paul's letters. Ephesians, or, uh, Philippians 2.3, for example, says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Paul's letters bleed with this stuff. Look, do nothing out of selfish ambition. In other words, don't chase what's best for you. Vain conceit. I mean, you might as well just insert social media. Everything we do on social media is veiled vain conceit. It's an attempt to either prop ourselves up personally or for somebody else. Yes, I know you can make the argument. I have to do this for what? The reality is that most of it is just vanity. I'm not saying dump it. It's part of who we are now. But the reality is just be honest about it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, true, real humility, the kind that Paul says in 8, which I am the least of all of God's people. And there were some bad people of God. Think about some of those people that were in the Ephesian church. They had worshipped at pagan temples. They had literally had sex with temple prostitutes. They had probably killed people. They had done horrible things. And yet now they are saved and a part of God's people. And Paul says, I am the least of all of you. He's not a humble brag. He means it. He believes it. In humility, consider others what? Better than yourself. Not equal footing. Not treat someone as you would like to be treated. But most likely and most literally, they are better than me. Why? Because I know me. And it's not just to heap garbage on yourself, but just to keep your heart in a right perspective that says, look, I didn't choose this and I don't deserve it. Everything that I have that is good by any means is because God is. So what that does is it generates a life of gratitude, not a poor me. It's not about kicking yourself. It's about recognizing your place and just saying, I can't believe I get any of this. Of course, you, I want what you, what's best for you. I want to hear your story before I tell you mine. I want to celebrate with you before I tell you how much better my day was than yours. I just want to drop and dump the inflated view of myself, right? I want to be humble. I want to make sure the people around me, my parents, my, my kids, my friends, my coworkers, they know I care about them and they matter. If I do anything that makes someone else feel poorly, bad about themselves, I want it to break my heart. I wrestle with this every day. Second thing I see there that I think is really important is that, that like Paul, God has a plan and a purpose for you. And I'm not talking about that sort of, and, and again, I'm stepping out of the church purpose that we talked about a second ago, but I'm talking about personally. And I'm not talking about the person you're going to marry or what your job's going to be or what day you're going to die or whatever that is. I'm talking about something a little bit bigger. It talks about it in Ephesians 2.10, right? Where he says that God has this plan for you. We looked at it just a couple of weeks ago. He says it just like this. Paul says, listen, I want you to understand this. You are, therefore, God's workmanship, right? Created in Christ to do good works for which God has prepared in advance for you to do. So if you want to look generally at what your purpose is in the world, right? All of us want to know, God, what do you have for me? What's my purpose? If you want to look generally at what it is, there's two real things here. One, recognize that you are God's workmanship. The Greek word there actually has this connotation of a work of art. You are God's work of art. We know that. David tells us that in Psalm 139, right? He knit us together in our mother's womb. You are God's work of art. You are not broken. You are not ugly. You are not old. You are not fat. You are not any of those things. Those are all lies that society has told you to believe. God has made you as a work of art. You are the crowning jewel and part of the crowning jewel of his great story. 
God has created you as his workmanship, knit you together, built you on this sort of bench with fine tools and beautiful things. And he's done that because he has a purpose for you. He has created you to do good things, good works, which he has prepared in advance for you to do. Your purpose as a follower of Christ is to do the things that bring Jesus glory. He has prepared good things for you to do. And those good things are part of our great story, right? Love other people more than you love yourself. Fight for those that can't fight for themselves. Be a lover of people. Give your resources away, not out of abundance, but because you get to steward God's stuff. Be joyful. Get rid of the anxiety and the worry and those trappings of the world that want to chase shiny things. And just realize God has created me to do good here. And a good is not just about doing nice things. Good is doing good things in the name of Christ. I do this because Jesus compels me. It's a difference, the big difference in mission and good deeds. Anybody can do something nice for someone else. Mission becomes when you do it in the name of Christ so that they might know him. That's the compelling move of the follower of Christ. I don't do things because I have to. I do things because I get to. Because Jesus has so changed my life that I want him to change yours. And so I give out of my sacrifice, not abundance. God has a plan for you. If you feel like you're wandering aimlessly, just look at Ephesians. You don't have to have every detail of everything lined out about your career and where you're going to move. You just need to understand that God has made you right now as his work of art to do great things that bring him glory. So when you wake up in the morning, today is a day you get to decide, I'm going to bring God glory glory with how I live. That's my purpose today. I'm going to look at somebody else that I work with that I know is probably struggling and I'm going to tell them that they're loved. I'm going to listen to their story when no one else will. I'm going to look my child in the eye that I want to strangle and I'm going to tell them that they are amazing and that they are still welcome in this house. (laughs) I'm going to look at my husband or my wife after 20 years of marriage and I'm going to tell them that I'm fighting to still love them well. These are the great things that we've been created for. You want to know your purpose? Simplify it, right? Not everyone's going to be Paul in this way that we're going to take this to the world, but every single one of us has this call to be the hands and feet of God's glory to the world because together we are the manifold expression of his wisdom. And then finally, he says this. So, right, we've got this dump, this inflated view of yourself. God has this purpose for you that's really clear. And then finally, my thought is, don't put confidence in yourself. But put confidence in, the, confidence in the promises of God. So I, I, like I told you, like, you're not that great, I'm not that great. I also know what I'm capable of, and it's not a lot. Um, I forget things, uh, I drop the ball, I chase shiny objects, I get really anxious, I get really worried, I get fearful. I hear the voice of God, and I forget it in the exact same breath. I can't put confidence in my ability to do pretty much anything. Oftentimes, when I'm walking to go do something that I need to do or was told to do, I forget what it was and end up doing something else along the way, right? I have no confidence that I can even complete a task. I can't put confidence in me. The next thing that comes along, I chase. If I'm living in full joy and everything's going great and a tiny little anxiety pops inside of my mind about what's going to happen here, I am now fully focused on that fear, and I have forgot eight great, beautiful years of what God has done, and I am chasing the anxiety star. I can't put confidence in myself. This is why Paul tells the church, he says, listen, you don't have to. You're not worth anything, really. God has filled you. He has given you your worth. You can put your confidence in his promises. And that's why the Bible is full of calling God things like strong tower, fortress, refuge, rock, deliverer. These are all words that manifest God's immovability firm foundation. And not only is that who God is, we can approach him with full confidence and freedom. So put your confidence where it belongs. Why let fear and anxiety drive your soul when God has said, come to me at any moment and I will hear you and I will not move. Parable after parable, building our house on the firm foundation, psalm after psalm of God, the rock, the strong tower, the immovable one, the mountain. I'm a tiny boat on a giant ocean. Stop putting confidence where it doesn't belong.
Get it out of you. Dump it fully on the Lord. He can take all of it. So all this to say, this is what Paul's getting to, and he's about to start this great prayer for the Ephesians, which we're going to get into. It's super cool. He says, listen, if I could break it down in a simple way without kind of going giant preacher crazy, it would be this. I was broken and chasing my own life. I just was. I was on a track that wanted everything for me, and God showed up and said, I don't think so. And he gave me this new voice and this new message, and that voice is to tell you about the unsearchable riches of Christ and to tell the world that they are now part of God's plan if they will surrender to Jesus. But I want you to hear that once you accept that message, once you believe that truth, that God has saved you and redeemed you, you become part of something much bigger than yourself. You become part of this family. And as part of that family, you are the incredible crowning display of God's glory, not just for the creation on the earth, but for all the spiritual principalities, good and bad. You are the crowning jewel of God's incredible movements because he has brought what was unreconcilable, what was unredeemable. He has redeemed it all. You are the beauty of who God is. The church is the beauty of God's movement. And he says that once you get that, then you have the freedom in Christ to approach God yourself. You don't need a pope, a super pastor, super religious leader, a great, amazing worship leader with perfect hair and tattoos. You don't need him. You've got full access to Almighty God, so approach him with confidence. He's given you everything. There are no more secrets. The great mystery is unveiled and, re and revealed. And don't worry about me that I'm in jail, my sufferings. I did this for you, and I do it a thousand times over. So dump the inflated view of yourself and remember who I am, broken, the least of all God's people, and so are you. If every one of us thought we were the least of God's people, it would be this amazing, humble movement that loved well and showed the world the grace of Christ. Right? Remember, you have a purpose. Don't wander aimlessly. If you can't figure out what the giant purpose is, remember that the, the one that he's called you to is to just do the things that bring him glory. I'm going to draw breath this morning, God, and I'm going to bring you glory. I'm going to give life to someone else with my words. And then finally, that piece that just says, I'm not putting confidence in me. I got nothing to offer. I'm going to put all my confidence in the true and promises of God. The strong tower, the mighty fortress, the refuge, the firm foundation, the rock. I shift like the sands, but God has called me to place my hopes and my fears and my anxieties to cast all of them upon him and stand in the promises that are his freedom and confidence in Jesus. This morning as we close our time in worship, that becomes our heartbeat, right? Like if this is who we could be together, the manifestation of God's incredible wisdom to the world, his beauty and glory to the world, built upon those principles, death to self, loving other people more than I love myself, acknowledging the freedom to approach the rock. As we close our time in worship, let ask, let's ask God to press these things upon us that we might become exactly who he created us to be in his great and perfect plan. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the great movement of God. This incredible picture that you have laid out for us. And this great mystery revealed in our place that you have given us this incredible story to be a part of. That you have given us this call, this thing that is so much bigger than ourselves, but at the same time is so wrapped up in who we are, that we would be a church that would recognize that our job is to love each other so well that your glory is on full display for the world and for the universe, that whether it's a created being or a spiritual principality, Lord, we are the evidence of your crowning movement and glory in the world. And how we love each other matters. You have saved and redeemed us through your grace alone. Help us put to death our own way of life, our own thought process, our own desires, so that we might fully surrender to you and approach you with confidence and freedom in Christ. For you are the King of Kings. We love you and we thank you for Jesus. As we close our time in worship, Lord, may you press these things on our heart, make them true and real and powerful as we celebrate all that you are. Let's stand together and close our time in worship.
to allow those truths that we encounter in Scripture to become a part of who we are, that we, the church, right, have been given this incredible plan by God, handed it to Him, that we become this sort of incredible dispenser of His grace and wisdom to not just creation, but to the world. And your role in it is vital and it's valuable. God has a plan for you. He has a plan for us. Go in peace.